Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Grok Radio. The following broadcast is made possible by the friends and partners of CYI Worldwide Ministries and Grok Radio. And the views expressed in this program and by our guests may not necessarily reflect those of CYI Worldwide Ministries or its staff. And now, enjoy the show. You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you in further. You step forward little by little not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls calls you to enter in to deeper waters. I am Nick Peters, and welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. I'm coming to you here from Croydon, Tennessee, and my guest happens to be coming just from his place in Houston. And today we are going to be talking <clears throat> with David C. Cates, and he's got a new translation of a Bible out that's called The Voice that he wants to talk about. Now, who is Dr. Cates? David B. Cates is the Thomas Nelson Research Professor in the Department of Theology at Houston Baptist University. You know, we like to get a lot of people on from Houston Baptist. He is a graduate of Mercer University and Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. He is the author, co-author, and co-editor of a number of books, including Old Testament Yahweh Texts and Paul's Christology, Rediscovering Paul, an Introduction to His World Letters and Theology, Israel's God and Rebecca's Children, the Voice of Hebrews, The Mystery of Melchizedek, and The Story of a Voice. For seven years, he served as a lead scholar on the Voice Bible Translation, a joint venture of Ecclesia Bible Society and Thomas Nelson Publishers. Since 1977, 1997, he has co-hosted a popular radio show in Houston called A Show of Faith. And if you're in that area, you can listen to it on 1070 AM KNTH, The Answer. He and his wife, Kathy, live in Richmond, Texas, and they have three sons. Now, in their spare time, they work with dog rescue. So, uh, Dr. Cakes, welcome to the Deeper Waters podcast. Hey, thanks so much, Nick. Great to be with you. have been looking forward to this conversation for a while now. Yeah, it's good to have your voice here talking about the voice. Exactly, yeah. Now, uh, we, we call this translation the voice because we just think that God has been speaking and continues to speak. And, well, there was one question already answered. Uh, oh, I'm sorry about that. Oh, that's fine. That's fine. It's. <clears throat> I was going to ask anyway, but the question that I think we need to ask at the start also is, how did you get to be doing what you're doing? And my audience might not know you right off, so tell us a little bit about yourself other than the academic side. Okay, thanks, Nick. Uh, I grew up in Georgia, outside of Atlanta, at a little place called Decatur, and uh, came to faith when I was about seven years old, I think, and felt a call to ministry in, in my teenage years, and I sort of began pursuing that. I was a youth pastor at uh, Dunwoody Baptist Church in Atlanta for a while, and then uh, ended up going to seminary, and like, we moved out to Fort Worth, Texas. Uh, I thought I was going to be a, a youth minister forever, or I thought I was going to be a you know, a pastor for a, a church forever, but somewhere in there, God got my 
my attention about the possibility of working as an academic and teaching others. I had a, I had a Nick, I had a, a professor many years ago that made a statement that has stuck with me. He said that every semester I have a new congregation, hmm. which is a very interesting kind of way of thinking about it. Um, over the years, I've probably there have been thousands and thousands and thousands of people that I've had the privilege of teaching. I've been mm -hmm. teaching 24 years now at HBU, mm -hmm. and that's that's a that's a long time. I have thousands of students, and so every time the new semester begins, it's like having a new congregation. So it's it's an extension of ministry, I think, but it's also a kind of a pursuit of what you love uh, in your head. We're told to go to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and body. Mm -hmm. and Loving God with our minds is really significant. So uh, my wife and I moved to Texas uh, the second time back in 1990 to come here to HBU. And uh, a lot of great opportunities have opened up here in the city, both on the radio show you talked about earlier, mm -hmm. but also in terms of writing some books and working and collaborating with some people mm -hmm. uh, on a number of projects. So I guess that's how I got to where I am. I'm a lot more detailed, but I'm not sure that... Uh, People want to go into that now, but some of the books that I've written that you talked about earlier are, uh, you know, some of them are very academic books, and uh, for that reason, a little bit difficult to read because you need to know a little German, a little Greek, and a little Hebrew to read them. But others are, are more uh, popular books that anybody can pick up and just read, mm -hmm. and hopefully get find some some help with. Yeah, I really liked what you said just now, also about how. You have a different congregation every year. I mean, because something I notice, and a lot of my fellow apologists know within the community, is that too many of our pastors, they are unfortunately, how shall I say, woefully unequipped for the challenges of this generation. Yeah, I'm afraid that a lot of times that the training that we get as, as pastors in seminary doesn't really include understanding well the times that we're living in. Mm -hmm. And I, I do think we're living in, 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 a, in this postmodern age. I think the people coming up that are maybe your age and some a little bit younger and maybe some a little bit older, uh, they present a lot of challenges mm -hmm. uh, to, to help. Uh, the way they think about the world, the way they think about themselves is very different than a lot of pastors. Mm -hmm. So they, they do have a lot of challenges. And and your your work, I think, as well as the work of a lot of people in the apologetics movement, is very helpful mm -hmm. getting people to providing answers and for defending the faith, but also aggressively sort of getting the word out there about mm -hmm. the faith. Yeah, I've reached the point like that reached it after watching the funeral of someone I know recently. I thought the preacher really messed up on the on the resurrection passage in First Thessalonians 4, and I started thinking, yeah, I'm going to go up to ministers now and say, okay, tell me why I should think Jesus rose from the dead, and if they give me any answer along the lines of, say, the Holy Spirit tells me Jesus rose from the dead, or where the Bible is the word of God, and it says Jesus rose from the dead, then I'm going to say, go ahead and get out of the pulpit. You're not gonna. You're not fit to serve us right now because you're gonna be eaten alive. Well, you know, obviously, I think the Spirit does speak to us, but I'm not really sure that. Uh, and I think the Scriptures are significant, but but uh, I think we've got to go sometimes deeper into history, mm -hmm. deeper into yep. uh, what what really happened. The Christian mm -hmm. faith is a historic faith. Mm -hmm. It's in history. It's not just a bunch of stories. <laughs> 
really based in things that have happened, mm -hmm. things that have happened, many of which are miraculous happenings. Mm -hmm. And we, we need to have an answer about those things mm -hmm. and be able to defend those. And I think Mike Lacona has done a great job, and I think uh, you know Craig Blomberg and others have done a good job sort of answering some of those critics. Mm -hmm. I should point out, since you mentioned Mike and Craig Blomberg, rather, both of them have been on the show, in fact, right. tw twice at this point. <laughs> <laughs> Craig, yeah, yeah. Craig, Craig's a good friend, and like I said, Mike teaches with us at Houston Baptist University, so we're we're very fortunate to have him uh, working alongside us. In fact, if anyone's interested, Mike was on our show last month. If you haven't heard it yet, he was talking about his Plutarch research, and he would also tell you it's not just because of our relation, but he'd tell you that it's probably the most in-depth interview that he's done on that latest research. That's great. That's great. Now, we're talking about a Bible translation you've got called The Voice. Exactly. Now, a lot of people could be out here listening and thinking, Dr. Capes, I go to my Christian bookstore, okay? I go to the Bible section. There are so many Bibles out there. It's yeah. incredible. I can't believe that they're out there. And now you're telling me you're wanting, you've got one more out there, why do we need another Bible translation out here? Yeah, Nick, that's, that's a great question. In fact, when I was on CNN back in April of uh, 2012, Carol Costello asked me that same question. I knew it was coming mm -hmm. uh, because that's one of the first questions people ask. And I was on CNN waiting for the camera to come on that morning uh, early on, and it just came to me. Because uh, I'd, I'd answered it before, but it just came to me that the Bible is the most owned and least read book out there. And we have more Bibles than ever before, more Bible translations than ever before. But despite that, it is the most owned book and the least read book there. Mm -hmm. so we, we wanted to try to provide a copy of the Bible that people would not only uh, own, but also would want to read. And we've done a number of things that are different in this translation so that it, it looks different, it, it feels different, and uh, particularly for those who are afraid of the Bible, mm -hmm. find the Bible a hard book to read, mm -hmm. or people who've never read the Bible before, we think this is an opportunity uh, for them. This is not a Bible that's meant to replace anybody's favorite version. Right. It's meant to try to appeal the people who have never read the Bible before. Mm -hmm. there, there are millions upon millions of people in America like that, more than ever at, at any time in history. And we're, we're hoping that this gets in their heart and mind. And if, they, and if they read the voice and find some appreciation for it, and they read, then go on to read other Bibles, well, we'd be thrilled with that. Yeah. But it really is a, a Bible that we hope will be a gateway into reading the rest of the scriptures in a different way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a little interesting fact that I was thinking about. Where first off, before that, I'm I'm a little bit concerned that my first question about this was the same as someone on CNN. That has me a bit worried right now. Well, hey, that's okay. That's okay. Uh, and, and and I've I've had that also for many other Christian mm -hmm. uh, uh, Christian folk too. Because you know, again, the situation is there are are Bible translations aplenty. Mm -hmm. It's just people aren't reading those. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, that pe people are—they're leaving them on the shelf. Mm -hmm. And again, some of the things we did in this translation, we hope will be able to appeal to a different kind of audience. Mm -hmm. when, when we did this, we had a, an audience in mind of people 18 to 35, mm -hmm. and we started this about seven years ago. 
So uh, that, that really has not changed. But what I'm finding is that people in their 50s and 60s like it mm-hmm. because it's a fresh way of hearing the scriptures. Yeah. yeah. Interestingly, also, since you said the Bible is the most bought in these read books, I've also heard on a reading of that it's uh, interestingly the most shoplifted book that there is as well. It, it is well gotten. Now, I haven't heard that. I haven't heard that. Yeah, and if that's true, well, they obviously need it. Well, I think so. One of the things, too, Nick, that I noticed was that, um, and you know, I've done some pastoral work and have been in a lot of churches over the last 20 years. Hmm. And if you go to the lost and found of any church, guess what the number one thing you're going to find in the lost and found is? Bibles. Bibles, yeah. Hmm. But more than anything else, if people leave their car keys, they go back for them. If people leave their checkbook or their smartphone, they go back. Mm-hmm. But it, they don't go back for the Bible. They mm. think, okay, I'll pick it up next week, but they don't. They mm-hmm. don't pick it up next month. They don't pick it up a year later. Mm-hmm. And so Bibles just stack up in lost and found. Again, people own it, but they don't read it. Now, you said that when you were talking about how this translation was done, you said, we. Tell us yes. about this team that you assembled. Yeah, well, in all, there's 120 people who worked for seven years. Mm. And what we did differently, Nick, that that uh, no other translation in English has done, is we assembled not only scholars of Greek and Hebrew, but we said this. We said, the Bible has a lot of poetry. Why don't we invite some poets to help us? Mm. The poetry. The Bible contains a lot of great stories, narratives. Uh, why not have some storytellers, some some novelists come along and help us tell the story well? Mm-hmm. So uh, we we assemble these teams uh, that they work together sometimes in person, sometimes over the internet, sometimes over Skype, uh, sometimes uh, over the phone, and they would work together collaboratively. And it would take, you know, depending upon how big the book is, it would take, you know, months or maybe years for a book, a single book to be completed. Mm-hmm. And 120 people over seven years, but not only scholars, but also poets and, and writers of other, of other types. We had lawyers because the Bible has a lot of law code in it. Mm-hmm. Why not have lawyers sort of help us sort of map out the law codes? You found Christian lawyers somewhere? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yes, this is great one. This is a great one. I mean, think of Charles. Think, think of Calvin, John Calvin. Mm-hmm. You know, think of think of uh, some of the. My doctor father, Earl Ellis, was a lawyer as well as a, a professor mm-hmm. of Testament. Mm-hmm. My great friend here is a fine Christian lawyer uh, who helped us with the translation, named Jack Wisdom. Now, what, wasn't that a great name? Oh yeah. So um. So that that that's the we. That's the we yeah. part of it. Yeah. Uh, can you tell us some of the scholars that worked with you on this? Yeah, let me give you a few that some some of which you know and some of which you probably don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, Tripper Longman, mm-hmm. uh, it, it teaches at Westmont, and he's written a lot mm-hmm. about Job and some of the wisdom literature. So he's one of the scholars that helped us with this. Craig Marlowe from the Evangelische Faculty in Belgium. Mm-hmm. A Protestant seminary there was one of our, our, our helpers on this. Uh, we had Nancy Duclossier Walford, who teaches at Mercer in Atlanta, mm-hmm. a seminary, great, great scholar. Um, and on the New Testament side, we had, um, let's see, I'm trying to think of all the people. We had Peter Davids. Now, Peter 
is not known outside too much, but he's very well known among in the academic community as a, an expert in what's called the general letters. Yeah, we tried to have a show of him, and I thought everything was recording, and something went wrong, so unfortunately we missed it, but that interview that I had with him, it was great. I just wish everyone else could hear it. Yeah. <laughs> Need a backup plan or something like that. But Peter Davis was with us. Uh, Alan Culpepper, a great scholar on Gospel of John, uh, worked with us. Uh, Joey Dotson, who is a young, upcoming scholar, who uh, worked with us. He, he teaches at Ar in Arkadelphia, uh, Arkansas, at Wachita Baptist University. Mm -hmm. uh, boy, uh, Daryl Bach. You might have heard of Daryl Bach. He's been on the show before. Has he? Yeah, mm -hmm. great. He, he helped us with Luke and Acts. In fact, that's what he talked about when he was on the show, Luke and Acts. <laughs> yeah, Luke, uh, he has written commentary after commentary on Luke and Acts. And so he was he was one of the people that uh, worked with us on this project as well. One of the things, Nick, that we wanted to do differently is uh, because of the nature of this translation, rather than just round up the usual people who work on translation, who worked on the NIV, and who worked on this uh, the ESV or other translations. We wanted to have some new voices, some mm. younger voices. So we have a lot of younger scholars and newer scholars who are a part of this as well, like Christy Swinson, mm. who's a research professor at uh, the University of Virginia. And she's an Old Testament specialist, brilliant writer on her own, and but also a great Hebrew scholar as well. She, she worked on Isaiah for us and also the Book of Numbers mm -hmm. and the Book of Lamentations. So uh, we we had we had some familiar people, but also some familiar some unfamiliar people, people who haven't been on Bible translation projects before. Mm -hmm. And part of that, Nick, is the fact that once you do a Bible translation, you really don't want to do it again. You don't yeah. want to go back and repeat it because you sort of used up your soap, if you will. Mm -hmm. You've used up uh, your fresh ideas in that translation, and that's hard to bring over to a new translation. Yeah. You've written several other books. I'm guessing, though, that there's something really intimidatingly different about doing a Bible translation. You're kind of thinking, yeah, if there's one book I don't want to make a mistake on, it's this one. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. uh, there, yeah, I would say that there was so much care taken. Mm -hmm. Once the translators were finished, once the writers were finished, there were 14 levels of review. Mm -hmm. And I was two of those levels. They had lots of other very good people with Thomas Nelson mm. and at Ecclesia Bible Society above me and below me in, in, the, in the scheme mm. of, of getting at this. So it, it's not just me. It's not just a translator. It's not just this. There were lots of people working on mm -hmm. every book, on every verse. And so we felt like there was strength in that. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I would imagine that other translations do the same so that you, you don't make a mistake. Mm -hmm. uh, but even with all of that, sometimes mistakes are made. You know, you miss a period, you miss a comma, you miss spell a word or something. Those those things do happen. So mm -hmm. that's why you have a second edition. Yeah. Now, how exactly did this come about, though? I mean, who, who really set the bar in motion and how did you get it going? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Um, I'm a member of a church mm -hmm. in Houston called Ecclesia. Mm -hmm. Ecclesia is, is a, it may sound like a strange word, but it's the Greek word that's most often translated church right. in the Testament. Mm -hmm. And uh, it really means the assembly of those who've been called together. Mm -hmm. And so our church is just simply called Ecclesia. Ecclesia is a very interesting kind of church. The pastor there is named Chris C. Mm -hmm. 
Chris is a, a young pastor. When I met him, he was in his early 30s. Now he's probably about 41 or 42. But a young pastor, very good pastor, good teacher. But he, he had experienced some frustration mm -hmm. in trying to tell the story of Scripture faithfully, given some of the translations that were out there. Mm -hmm. So he started talking about this with other people and saying, well, somebody needs to do this, somebody needs to do this. And somebody one day said, well, I, Chris, I think you're the guy that needs to do this. He's a very catalytic personality. He pulls together people well. Chris himself helped with uh, a few of the chapters because he's a good writer. He's not a scholar, but he's a good writer. Mm -hmm. So he helped with some of the material. And Paul, for example, is one of the ideas because I've done some work on Paul. Right. And, um, so Chris C. was probably the catalytic person. And he, he, he went to a couple of different publishers that, uh, you know, and talked with them. But finally, Thomas Nelson was the publisher, and, and they're, they're a great publisher. They've been around mm -hmm. since the 1780s or 90s. Wow. Start, started in Edinburgh, Scotland. Mm. And now, now they're in Nashville, Tennessee, right up the road from you guys. Mm -hmm. But it's a great publisher, and Frank Couch uh, was the person who was in charge of the Bibles and Bible translation. The last translation they did at Thomas Nelson was called the New King James. Mm -hmm. You've probably heard of that one. Yeah. Yeah. They did that about 30, 35 years ago. And so the Bible translations for them were, were not second nature. They just didn't do one every mm -hmm. 10 years. They do one every 30 years. So this is a 30-year project for the mm. publisher. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about what goes into Bible translation in some curves. So yeah. many times in the apologetics community, we're out there doing evangelism, we'll be told, well, you know, when you make a... When they make the Bible, it's a translation of a translation of a translation, and all these texts have been translated over and over and over again. Is that really what went on? Well, not really. Um, let, me, let me say this. Let's talk about the Christian Bible is in two parts. There's an Old Testament and a New Testament. Right. And let's say talk about the New Testament for a moment. The New Testament was written originally in Greek, mm -hmm. and we have some very, very good manuscripts that go back some to the probably early part of the second century, not very far mm -hmm. from the time which they themselves were written. And so, yeah, we, we are not translating a translation. We're actually translating into English from the original language spoken by Peter, spoken by Paul, spoken, I think, even by Jesus. I think Jesus was able to speak Greek. Mm -hmm. And so, I, though he didn't do it every day, probably in his life, he probably spoke Aramaic on a regular basis. Still, the people that recorded it in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are doing it in Greek. And right. so we're not redoing a translation of a translation. We're actually doing a translation of the original languages mm -hmm. that were written in, into which the New Testament was written. Same thing is true of the Old Testament. We're doing a translation from the Hebrew. Mm -hmm. And this is the original language in which the Old Testament was written. It was translated into, into, into other languages like Latin, <clears throat> translated into Greek and other things, the Old Testament was. But we are working specifically with the Hebrew text itself. Yeah, for anybody who's listening and is wanting more information about the text of the New Testament and such, back last April I did do a show where I interviewed Daniel Wallace on here. and Oh, great, yeah. Yeah, I'm sure you know also, he's the guy to talk to about New Testament text. Absolutely, yeah. So if you're wanting more information about that, if that whet your appetite a little bit, then go back to last April, listen to Daniel Wallace. So you didn't just go and 
look at all these other translations and say, well, let's just change this and change that and change that. But you actually went to the Greek and Hebrew manuscripts that we have. Exactly. That's how we got started. We started with a blank page. Mm-hmm. And that's, from my understanding, pretty much how most every translation is made, isn't it? Well, actually not. Uh, when you hmm. go back and look, for example, at the famous translation of the King James Bible, mm-hmm. that's actually a, a revision of what's called the Geneva Bible. Yep. The Geneva Bible was a little earlier, and if you compare the Geneva Bible with the King James, they're very, very similar. And when you think about other translations into English in the 20th century, uh, for example, the Revised Standard Version, they mm-hmm. started with, uh, they worked from the original text, mm-hmm. but they also had the King James right alongside them. Mm-hmm. And they would change just a few words here or there. So to read the Revised Standard and to read the King James side by side, you, you don't really get a sense that, that these are, are completely independent works. Uh, the Revised Standard Version people, they did good work, but they didn't start with a blank page. We wanted to start, Nick, with a blank page. Mm-hmm. Now, now, when I say that, please understand <clears throat> that the people that were working on this, you, you can't run away from memory. Right. So, so that when you come to Psalm 23, and you start looking at the Hebrew of that, uh, it's very difficult to get away from something as beautiful and as elegant as the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Mm-hmm. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside still waters. All of those all those voices of these other translations are echoing as you're doing the translation. Mm-hmm. So you can't you can't run away from that. I don't think we want to run away from that. But nevertheless, we wanted to do something fresh and new. And so in many ways, I think we started with a fresh page, mm-hmm. and yet those mm-hmm. other echoes are still there present with us. Mm-hmm. Now, why is it also that you think that so many Christians really – aren't reading the Bible, because we keep coming out with translations that are meant to be easier and easier to understand. Yeah. If people pick up the King Jimmy, yeah, it's a bit difficult to understand if you're not familiar with the language, but then you can get the NIV or even the TNIV or the NLT or these other translations that are much easier to understand. So what's really the problem here? Well, um, I, I think, I think, one of the problems is, even if the Bible translation is easier to understand, it still is intimidating to many people because the Bible doesn't look like any other book that they've ever read. Mm-hmm. If if they pick up a novel, they know what a novel looks like. If they pick up a, a they pick up a newspaper, they know what that looks like. But when you have the Bible set apart the way it is, put on the page, formatted the way it is, it is intimidating to a lot of people. Where do you start reading? Um, where, uh, how do you read? Uh, do you read it all the way through? Let me tell you a story, a little bit of a story about one of the fellows that helped us on this, and his name is Frank Couch. Frank Couch came, became a Christian in 1963, the same year that Kennedy, when Kennedy was assassinated. So he, one of the older guys working on the translation. When he became a Christian, he was given a copy of the King uh, of the J.B. Phillips translation of the New Testament, mm-hmm. which is a brilliant translation, done back in the 1940s and 50s. Well. He, he wasn't from a Christian family. He had never read the Bible before. So he started at the very beginning, like most books. And he read through Matthew, and that was fine. And then he started with Mark, and he thought to himself, the story's starting over again. What kind of book is this? Mm-hmm. 
And he got angry. He, he, he tells us, he got angry. Why did they write the book this way? He didn't understand. I think, Nick, a lot of people have trouble reading the Bible because it's a hard book to understand without some help. And if you don't have a guide, if you don't have some people, if you don't have a community, a Christian community to help you, it's a difficult book. And I don't think we're very good at teaching people in church how to read the Bible. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we don't give them the right tools to read the Bible from church. And whether that be Catholic or Protestant, so I and then and then of course then you got all the secular people in the world mm-hmm. who who aren't Christians. They don't and, and we really wanted to get them reading the scriptures. There's a there's a statement made uh, in a in a Dutch newspaper by um, the guitarist for the Rolling Stones, right? And he makes a statement. I read the Bible sometimes, but I find it deadly boring. Mm-hmm. So I think there's some people that because they don't know what they're doing and they find the Bible hard to read, that they, when they get there, they find it to be a very boring book because they don't really understand what they're reading. So I think for all those reasons, we're, we're at a moment where uh, biblical literacy is as low as it's ever been. Mm-hmm. Stephen Prother up at Boston College, is, is, or Boston University, I think it is, has written about that elegantly, about the decline in religious liter- literacy and particularly the decline in biblical literacy in this country. And I think people just find the book a hard book to read. Hmm. When you were talking about what happened with Frank Couch, I can't but think of a story I heard. It's it's a joke for about a Hindu missionary who had left a copy of the Bible for some of the Hindus to read and came back and asked the priest what he thought about it. And the priest said, oh, you're Jesus. He is God, definitely. And the missionary was happy about it. And he said, well, I'm just curious, how did you reach that conclusion? He said, well, because it only took him four lifetimes to reach divinity. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah, good. And, well, um, if you don't have the right guide a lot of times, and I think that's where the church comes in, and sometimes where the church has failed to, to be a good guide through the scriptures for people. Mm-hmm. Now, when we talk also about the biblical literacy, part of it, I think, is, in fact, that the Bible is written in another culture, and therefore we find it hard to relate to that other culture and we too often, in fact, read in our own culture to the Bible. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right, Nick. We've got to remember when we're reading the Bible and working through it that the Bible is not America in the in the 21st century. Uh, there's there's It's written at a completely different time. The expectations were totally different. The, the problems were very different, and we got to keep those kind of things in mind, or else we're going to misread the Bible. A friend of mine has written a book. His name is Randy Richards, and it's entitled, it's a great book. I would encourage your listeners to uh, to see it. It's called Misreading Scriptures Through Western Eyes. Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful book. It's published by InterVarsity Press, I think 2010 or 2011. Mm-hmm. But he, he looks at how because we're, we're reading from American Western presuppositions how we misread the Bible. And uh, he worked as a, as a missionary in Indonesia for 10 years. Mm-hmm. And he discovered that people from that part of the world, with that, that culture, read the Bible with a totally different set of presuppositions and uh, ended up, I think, reading the Bible in fresh new ways and in ways that were closer to what Paul may have imagined or John may have imagined than than uh, than how we end up thinking about these things. Yeah, I'm just 
being constantly amused here, viewing all this, because since you brought up E. Randolph Richards and his book, Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes, uh, if anyone wants to hear more about that, we interviewed him back in May on that very book. Oh, did you really? <laughs> yeah, it, it's one of my favorite books on biblical interpretation, and also uh, uh, another one that might be relevant is last October, we interviewed uh, Brent Sandy on The Lost World of Scripture. Oh, yeah. Great. And you've talked to some great people. Yep. I try to bring the best for my audience. One other thing I think we often do in our culture is uh, we tend to read the Bible, in fact, scientifically a lot of times. I mean, I'm not really convinced a lot of times it's using scientific language. You're talking about the Bible itself. Yes. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think the people who wrote the Bible were very smart people. Mm -hmm. uh, that they had the same cognitive ability, I believe, that you and I have. Mm -hmm. um, if they, if you take this hunter daughter from 2000, or say uh, 500 BC, brought them into our modern world, they could be sitting at the gifted, talented table along with our sons and daughters. Mm -hmm. It's not a matter of cognitive ability. It's a matter of worldview. Right. They view the world differently. Uh, we have had the advantage of seeing some things and learning some things that they didn't have a chance to learn. Mm -hmm. But 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 their their interests are not and sometimes the same kind of interest that a modern scientific view would be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one example of this is uh, when we interviewed John Walton one time on his book, The Lost World of Genesis 1, and how I think a lot of people read that scientifically and say, yeah, I'm not convinced it is, and so that's also really helped me along these lines is uh, I've been going for this project of reading through the Psalms in the evening ever since reading N.T. Wright's book on them. And no, I haven't had him on the show, but that's a dream. <laughs> but uh, I go through the Psalms a few verses each night, and right now I'm up to Psalm 74, and what I try to do is ask myself, put up, take off my Christian lenses for a while and say, if I was an ancient Jew reading this at the time of a writing... What would I think about that's, it? That's a great question. Yep. That's a great question. Yep. Yeah. Because, I mean, we, we approach the text as Christians, yes, but we also have to remember that the Old Testament, especially, it came to Jews first, who didn't know anything about Jesus. I mean, they knew, some knew about a coming Messiah and such, but they would not have had any idea about Jesus. But the text had a meaning. To them, and you try and put yourself in their shoes and say, okay, what did this text mean to them? Now, then after that, you can look and say, okay, what does it mean in light of the New Testament? And then you finally go and ask, what does it mean for us today? Yeah, well, that, that's a great exercise mentally to do. As you were speaking, I thought about the word redemption mm -hmm. because that, that's a word you find in the New Testament mm -hmm. about salvation. Uh -huh. You also find that, that word in Psalms and in uh, uh, Deuteronomy mm -hmm. and, and uh, a lot of the Old Testament. And for them, redemption meant that God had rescued them as slaves, right? Mm -hmm. when, when we think of redemption, we think of Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. Mm -hmm. That's perfectly right. But when you read that word redemption back in Psalms or Deuteronomy or Exodus, they immediately went to the idea that God had come to them in a miraculous way through Moses and had liberated them while they were yet slaves in mm -hmm. Egypt. And so that's what redemption was about. Yeah. And so any future aspect of redemption sort of carried that same overtone. Mm 
end was very much an important part of that. That's a, that's a great exercise. That, uh, you've encouraged me to think about maybe rereading the Psalms in that way. Yeah, I'm on. It's just a few verses every now and then. And it, it's really kept me going for the past few months now. And one passage that came on when you talk about this was in the New Testament, that, for instance, when we talk about saved, we usually think that that means uh, that you've uh, accepted Christ as Lord, that you're heaven-bound, and I mean, I had some Jehovah's Witnesses talking about the passage, the passage about being saved, and I said, like, when it says saved here, I'm, I don't think it means what you think it means, and I said, here's an example, we turn to Acts 27, with the, the story of Paul caught at sea in the ship, and he says, unless all these men say, and these lifeboats say, you cannot be saved. Where there is your new way of salvation right there. You have to get caught in a storm at sea, and you stay on the ship the whole time. By golly, you get saved. That's right. <laughs> and uh, another one I've used is, well, since uh, I work with Mike so much, that we talk about the gospel in First Corinthians 15, and I say, well, look, when we go to Mark, Jesus calls us to believe the gospel as well. But surely at the start of Mark, he's not saying, believe that I'm the God-man God who's coming to die for your sins and rise again. Or people are thinking, what the heck are you talking about? And so I asked and said, and this is the way I start one of my main sermons, I say, what is the connection between what Jesus says in Mark 1 in between what happens in 1 Corinthians 15. And for me, my answer is that Jesus is talking about the reign of God. And then yeah, in 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection is the sign that Christ is reigning. So the two connect, as it were. Oh, I think you're exactly right, yeah. Uh, the, the key, the central message of Jesus is clearly the reign of God, also known as the kingdom of God. And, uh, and Jesus is the one who is the king. Well, and, and and he is he is in fact uh, going back to the Old Testament. One of the great things, if N.T. Wright were on the show right now, mm -hmm. he would say that um, that one of the great hopes that the Jews had, have, having read Isaiah, particularly mm -hmm. the second part of Isaiah, and Ezekiel and Malachi and Zechariah, was the fact, the hope that mm -hmm. one day Yahweh would return to Zion, mm -hmm. and early Christians thought that in, in Jesus, Yahweh had, in fact, returned from Zion. So Jesus is the king mm -hmm. who is reigning. And one day, 1 Corinthians 15, he will turn over all of that. He will mm -hmm. end all over so that God might be all in all. But, mm -hmm. but now, in the now time, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he is, uh, all enemies are being subjected to yeah. him. Justin, something that I was just thinking is so incredible that people have a hard time reading the Bible and here and so far we've been talking just for nearly 40 minutes and I'm already hoping that anybody who listens to this is always thinking, boy, I've already got some new things to think about with the Bible here. Well, I hope so. I hope that every time we speak, uh, you know, we, we give people something new to chew on, right? Yeah, that's, that's something I've even told my own pastor at our church. We were fortunate to find a church that we both like because my wife's the more feeler in a family. I'm the more thinker in a family and we were talking about our pastor about our situation. I said, you know, I gotta say, your sermons, 
I find them intellectually fulfilling. Thank you. <laughs> I think he was really impressed knowing that I'm the guy in the church who does a lot of the project information, and so that means that, yeah, I have to be intellectually capable and saying, yeah, I find your sermons fulfilling instead of me just saying, okay, same old, same old, yada, yada, heard it all before. <laughs> wow. I imagine that, I imagine your family. That's pretty interesting. You're you're the, you're the thinker. Your wife's the feeler. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. yeah. You, you know, gotta have that. You gotta have that. Yeah. You know, also, part of our trouble, I think, with reading the Bible is that we don't understand how to read. Period. We get caught up, for instance, especially with the Bible, that we have this strange rule that I've written about, which says everything in the Bible has to be taken, and I mean this with quotation marks. Literally, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And that's part of that's part of the sophistication of reading, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I mean, um, when Jesus says, uh, "If your right hand offends you, cut it off. Mm-hmm. If your right eye offends you, pluck it out," he's clearly not advocating to mutilate ourselves. If you take it literally, then we should be going out there and mutilating our bodies for the kingdom of God. But that, that's not really what Jesus was about. He was just trying to underscore with that kind of hyperbole mm-hmm. the seriousness of sin and, and, and the significance of the kingdom mm-hmm. and what it means to enter into the kingdom. So there are things that we have to read literally, and then there are things that we have to read figuratively. Mm-hmm. And, and those figurative readings are sometimes the most rich. It's the metaphorical images that are the most rich. Mm-hmm. We talked earlier about the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Even though we don't live, Nick, in a agricultural you know, world anymore, uh, people still resonate with an image of the Lord is my shepherd, mm-hmm. and what shepherds are, what shepherds do. Now, there may come a day when, when we are so far removed from any kind of agricultural society that we have no memory left. And then at that point, I'm not sure who's going to be translating the Bible or how they're going to try to put that image and for people who have lost a completely agricultural life. But but that image is so rich and beautiful, and I hope we never lose it. Yeah, I'm suddenly started thinking if we lived in some sort of Jetsons culture later in the future. And, exactly, yeah. yeah. And if anyone's interested also, there was an interview we did last September along these lines where we interviewed one of your colleagues, Hardy Ordway, oh, on yeah. literary yeah. Apologetic, but there, there is an inappreciation of the Bible as just a piece of literature. And when we talk about the way skeptics approach the text, it's, it's, like, it's no wonder you all find 101 contradictions or so, because that's the exact way you read the Bible in the worst light possible. And if this idea that where if it's the Word of God, it should be plain and clear to everyone. Well, maybe not. Well, yeah, I mean, it, that, that might be a nice, uh, a nice thing. That's not the reality of it. But again, that's why I think people have trouble reading the Bible sometimes, mm-hmm. Nick, is because the Bible is a demanding book. Mm-hmm. You can't just pick it up and read it uh, from your bedstand and right before you go to sleep and expect much to happen. You know, you're not going to understand it. You'll be falling asleep as you're reading it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it. It demands that we read it and that we study it, that we meditate on it, mm-hmm. right? That's what Psalm 1 is about. Um, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, stand in the way of the scornful, or sit in the seat of the scoffers. But he delights in the law of God. He reads it. He, he meditates on it day and night, and day and night, and day and night. That the Bible demands that 
we do that. And I think when we do when we when we do that kind of study and meditation, which is a form of prayer, I would mm-hmm. argue, when we do that kind of study and prayer, um, we are able to see great things and experience great things, and we're able to sort of resolve some of those contradictions uh, for ourselves and hopefully for others. Well, let's get dive into the translation right now, and I also okay. say at the start, I, I was a bit surprised when you sent it to me, because by the name I was thinking, this will probably be an audio translation, like, <laughs> oh, it's a book, okay. Yeah, yeah. Now, one thing I'm thinking about at the start of Genesis 1, and this gets back to that idea of how you translate text, Genesis 1 is a hotbed of controversy, it is, as yeah, we know, because... Yeah. I'm sure you had people from all different persuasions working on the text. You yep. probably had young earthers, you had old earthers, you might even have theistic evolutionists, everything possible on the text. So when you have this many people, how do you get to translate a text where everyone can look and say, okay, I can go with that? Well, one thing is the text is the text. We can't make it say something it doesn't say. We, mm-hmm. we can interpret the text. Some people might interpret it in terms of young earth or an older earth, or theistic mm. evolution, the interpretation of the text is something different. Mm-hmm. But when you look at the text, it said, mm-hmm. you've got to translate it. Mm-hmm. You know, in the beginning, God created. Mm-hmm. There's, there's not a lot, uh, frankly, there's not a lot that, that you, you do with that. You can't make the text say something, Nick, mm-hmm. that it doesn't say. Right. And so, mm-hmm. though people might come at it and have a hundred different perspectives, at the end of the day, the text says what it says. Mm-hmm. And we had a we, and, but we had a lot of fun with Genesis one one because every translation that you pick up has the same thing. If you look at any translation, almost except ours, we have something unique. It says, "In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth." Full stop. That's a perfectly good translation, but it doesn't necessarily help people understand what is going on in the text. What does heaven mean? Mm-hmm. What does earth mean? Right. Right. We use the word heaven, when I die, I go to heaven. Is yes. that what he meant? Mm-hmm. God is in heaven. Is that what he meant? That's another misreading that we usually do. Right. Heaven, heaven. Uh, the stars are in the heavens, right? Mm-hmm. Is, it, is it the universe? Is it space, outer space, the last frontier? Mm-hmm. What exactly, when, when it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, what is the writer trying to say? Mm-hmm. And so we ended up uh, understanding what I think is correct. From the Hebrew point of view, is that in the beginning God created everything, the heavens above, the earth below, everything basically, mm-hmm. because heavens and earth forms, and and this is pretty technical, but this is what it forms, a, a particular kind of, of thing in Hebrew called the Hindiades. Mm-hmm. Now yep. Hindiades is Greek for one through two. Mm-hmm. It's talking about one thing using two words. Mm-hmm. Let me give you an example in English. If somebody says the case is open and shut, yep. what does that mean in English? It means it's done. It's done, right. Mm-hmm. But we use two words, open and shut, to mm-hmm. describe the one thing. If I say, well, his argument is not black and white. Mm-hmm. It means it's not clear. It's not clear, right. Mm-hmm. But we're not talking about the color of the case. We're talking about something else. So when the Hebrew says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, he's talking about one thing. What is that one thing? Everything that exists. Mm-hmm. And everything that exists, from my standpoint, is stuff, everything above my head, 
mm-hmm. everything below my feet. The Hebrew word shamayim means everything that's above your head. Well, what's above your head? Well, the, the sky, the clouds, the stars, uh, the sun. Uh, moisture is up there. Why do I know why it's moisture? Because it rains. It comes down from time to time. All that water's up there. Well, that's that's what he's talking about. Everything above your head, God made, mm-hmm. and everything below your feet, God made. Well, what's below your feet? Well, yeah, you know, there's there's grass, there's there's rock, there's clay, and if you dig down, you're going to find water, right? Water mm-hmm. again. And so water figures very prominently in the creation story. So in the beginning, God created everything above your head, everything below your feet, literally everything God created. Now, I'm also thinking that that same terminology is also used, I've heard from other Old Testament professors, to describe a whole range of things by describing everything that could exist between them, and use the terms like east and west, north and south, or even as we'll see in chapter 2, the knowledge of good and evil. That exactly. might be an all-inclusive term. Yeah, and, and there are a number of binaries. Uh, I, I've, wrote, I've written recently about this on my, on my, my website, uh, davidbcase.com, mm-hmm. the binaries <clears throat> that are Genesis 1. Mm-hmm. And you have a number of them. You have heaven and earth. You have light and darkness. You have yep. male and female. You have uh, land and sea. Uh, you have uh, formless and void. You have these binaries that are at work in chapter 1 of, of Genesis that are describing, some of which are Hindiotis, two things speaking about one. For example, male and female. Mm-hmm. Male and female is speaking about one thing, humanity. God said, let us make man, humanity, in our likeness. He's talking about one thing, but he makes them male and female. Mm-hmm. Right? So the male and female aren't talking about two sides of God. Male and female are talking about two kinds of humanity. Yeah. Whenever thing that exists in the first verse, that doesn't exist in most Bible translations. In fact, not a single one that I know of here. Yeah, and yeah. it really, I think, sets the mood, because one of my favorite TV shows when it was on, I'd still like to watch it, i see it in reruns, was Monk, the obsessive-compulsive homicide detective. Yeah, and, I, I never, you know, I've seen that show maybe twice. But yeah, and I mean, people love it. The big, yeah, my parents always said that I was just like Monk, so I wanted to see if I could solve the case before he did. I still read the books when they came out. But <clears throat> the... Uh, the big thing you always loved in every episode when he came up with, when he finally figured out the clue and he said, here's what happened. And then you get a whole thing of, okay, here's how it's done. And that's exactly what your translation says. It says, in the beginning, God created everything, the heavens below, the earth, heavens above, the earth below. Here's what happened. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Now, let me, let me make sure our readers understand. That's not in the original Hebrew, Hebrew text. Mm-hmm. Uh, every translation does this. Mm-hmm. And if you look at it, you look at it, you'll see there's two kinds of words. Words are, are two kinds of, of uh, text. Right. One is a straight text, like a Times New Roman. The other is italicized. Mm-hmm. Every italicized text is added to help the reader track through the story. Mm-hmm. So it's not original, but it's added to the original to help direct the reader's attention. And here's what we were trying to do with that thing. Uh, some people have misread Genesis to say, in the beginning, God created the heavens and earth, and things were really bad, so God had to remake it. Gap like theory. The creation. I, I'm convinced, and, and most other interpreters are as well, that Genesis 1-1 is a kind of summary statement. In the beginning, right. God created the heavens and earth, and mm-hmm. this is how it happened. 
Yeah. That, that's, in other words, this is how God made the heavens and the earth, right? Mm -hmm. It's not that he made the heavens and the earth, and then something else happened. That is, day one, day two, day three, day four, etc. He made the heavens and the earth, and this is how God creates. Mm -hmm. So we wanted to help our readers understand that and not sort of misread and say, okay, well, after God created him the earth, then something else happened. And that's day one, day two, day three. He made light. He made, you know, he made the, the stars above and day four and such. Yeah. Um, now, yeah. as we go through also, we see that the text is written like a play. It's in dialogue form where you see each person's role, and you have God colon, let there be light. So yeah. you read it like you would read a play. Yeah, that's, that's one of the insights that came to us as we were working on this. Um, there's a lot of redundancy in, 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 in the Bible, mm -hmm. and it sometimes it's very difficult to see who is speaking to whom. Now, Genesis is pretty clear because God's the only one who's speaking, right? But in other places, you have four or five people speaking. So how do you know who is speaking to who? Mm -hmm. The Greek or the Hebrew doesn't help you very much there. Mm -hmm. So we decided to put all of the dialogue in the screenplay format. Mm -hmm. So it's Jesus, and then Mary, and then Jesus, and then Peter. It's really clear who is speaking to who at that point. And so you can just look at the text. And it makes it easy, too, Nick, for people to uh, pick up the text and say, okay, you read Jesus' part, you read Mary, you read mm -hmm. Peter. Yeah, I, I think everybody can sort of do that. I can imagine a group of people together, like a, a Sunday school or a small Bible study, and assigning different roles, and that would in fact allow people to get into the text, especially if some of them are very dramatic or and like to act and really <laughs> right, try right. and read it in a dynamic way. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Now, so that I, was one of the things that I'm, I think, even though it's a very simple change, I think it's a very helpful change. Yeah. That will help people who don't know how to read the Bible well follow along better. Uh, another thing that you get in italics here partially, but I like that I see in this chapter is beautiful and good to describe everything instead of just good. Beautiful and is in yeah. italics. Yeah, yeah. In the Hebrew, the Hebrew word is tov. Yep. Now, uh, it's, it's a very interesting word, tov. Mm -hmm. um, what does it mean exactly? Well, it means good. Well, what else does it mean? It can mean beautiful. But, but it means good in what way? Good meaning useful, good meaning moral, right? See, we talk about good and evil. Mm -hmm. So is, is it good in the sense of morality? Is it good in the sense of it's useful? Some things are good. Like I can say, well, my, well you know, my, this pen is good. In other words, this pen that I'm using is right, as opposed to a pen that's not good that doesn't have any ink in it. Mm -hmm. So the word good is pliable. And as we read through this, we believe that not only is, is, is God saying that, that this is useful and this, these things function the way that they're supposed to function, but they are also, when they fit together, there is a beauty that, to it as well. Because yeah. the Hebrew word tov can mean beauty mm -hmm. and, and good-looking, if you will, mm -hmm. as well mm -hmm. as meaning um, good or useful. Yeah, when I was in seminary, I did a paper on Thomas Aquinas and his understanding of beauty. Yes. And one author did point out about how tov does refer to something 
beautiful. In fact, it's one reason that my own wife and I have discussed when, if we ever have kids someday. That I said, if we have a daughter, I want to give her some name that's a variation of a name, Eve. Because <clears throat> I wanted to grow up knowing you are God's representation of beauty on earth. Nice. Very nice. Mm-hmm. Well, my I have a grandson coming, God willing, in October. Mm-hmm. My first grandson, and they've decided to call him Tobias. Mm. Now, Tobias is Hebrew for God is good. Oh. Tov, mm-hmm. Yah, simply, God mm-hmm. is good. Now, let's then go a little bit further and see one of the things that most readers of this Bible will have stick out to them pretty much immediately. And when I started reading this Bible, I started reading it somewhere in the middle because I was doing some different nightly reading and such. I was finishing N.T. Wright's translation of the New Testament, so I wanted to read something in the Old Testament every night. And oh, yeah. So I started going through yours, then, and one thing that leaped out to me was God is usually referred to as the Eternal over and over. You're talking about in, 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 in our translation? Yes. Yes, exactly. Now, that seemed to me like... Something very interesting now, because most people would not be familiar with that. Yeah, yeah, and let me tell you how we came about that. Um, over six thousand times, God is uh, referred to in the Hebrew Bible by His personal name. Mm-hmm. Now that name was a holy name, an unspeakable name. To say the name in some times and places was to be blaspheming God. Mm-hmm. And 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 so it's it's a very it's a very this is a sacred name, right? Right. And this is the name in Hebrew. I'm going to be technically for a moment, and I'll try to ease back on that. It's Yod Hey Vav Hey in Hebrew. Mm-hmm. Now we don't exactly know how that would be pronounced. Right. It's either Yahweh or Yahweh or Yahovah, probably. And that's where we get the word Jehovah, by the way. Mm-hmm. The name Jehovah. We talked about Jehovah's Witnesses earlier. Yep. It's actually sort of a made-up name with the vowel and stuff. All we have is the letter. Well, the question is, how do we translate that? Well, in, in most other Bible translations, that name is translated by the word Lord. That's just, we get this from the King James Bible. This was a time when there were lords and ladies and serfs and feudal societies and such. And, but the word Lord in these translations is spelled in all capital letters. That separates it from another word, Hebrew word, Adonai, which is also translated Lord, but mm. it's lowercase. Right. So the question is, how do you translate the name of God? Mm-hmm. Uh, we struggle with this, quite frankly. It's, it, I write about it in a little book that we've done called The Story of the Voice. I, I'd love for people to, to, to see that and know about that book. Because it tells, it goes into a lot of details about the decisions that we made in translating it. So 6,000 times in the Hebrew Bible, God's personal name is referred to. But we don't know how it's pronounced. We don't know how it's spoken. And it would be a mistake to try to, mis, to try to you know, it would not be good to mis, misread God's name 6,000 times, right? Right. So we translated it as the eternal. And this is why we did that. Because if you look at when the name is given back in Exodus 3, the name um, that God, the personal name, the covenant name that God reveals to Moses at the burning bush, uh, he says, in earlier generations I was known as El Shaddai, 
but, it, but now my covenant name by which I will be known forever is this name, yod Hey bav Hey, mm-hmm. And it comes from a particular Hebrew word, the word to be. And the idea is, I, I am. And we see this in the book of Revelation. The one who is, the one who was, the one who is to come. Mm-hmm. So past, present, and future. Right. The one who exists uh, simply of himself. He needs mm-hmm. nothing outside of himself to be himself. Mm-hmm. God is the, going back to Aquinas, God is the necessary being, right? Right. God is the only one that doesn't, I mean, God doesn't need anything to exist. We, we however, we need everything. We need oxygen. We need water. We need food. We need, mm-hmm. uh, we, we need so much. God needs nothing to exist. Mm-hmm. And so we, we struggle with this, and we, 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 we pray through it, and we felt like that it was a good way of expressing the inexpressible. Mm-hmm. The one who is, the one who <clears throat> was, the one who is to come. But you can't put that every time. Right. So simply call God the eternal, or in some cases, in poetic places, the eternal one. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that makes sense or not. It's, it's, it's a long way around it, but it's a really important question. It does. Uh, <clears throat> we're about halfway through the show right now, so we're going to take a quick break. I'm Nick Peters. This is the Deeper Waters Podcast. I'm interviewing Dr. David Cates from HBU talking about The Voice. We'll be back after this break. It's here, the official Brock Radio mobile app. Listen to your favorite Brock Radio programs on your iPhone, iPad, iPod, Kindle Fire, Android smartphones, and tablets. The best thing is, it's absolutely free. Download it now from the iTunes or Google Play App Store. Or get a link at our website, cyiworldwide.com. Rock Radio. Christian radio that doesn't suck. Check out cyiworldwide.com. Home of Rock Radio. Free music downloads, advice, prayer, and support. cyiworldwide.com. Do you rock? Hey, this is Minister Grok. Thanks for listening. Although Grok Radio is free, there are costs to upkeep the website, podcast, and purchase Bibles and materials for street ministry. And while we are happy to pay this ourselves out of pocket, we will gladly accept any gift if you feel led to support the shows and our street ministry. You can send a gift or love offering through our website at cyiworldwide.com. Thanks for your support, and God bless. Check out CYIWorldwide.com. CYIWorldwide.com. Home of Grok Radio. Free music downloads, advice, prayer, and support. CYIWorldwide.com. Do you Grok? Can't get enough of your favorite Grok Radio shows? Well, now you can download episodes for free. Check out the Grok Radio program archive at CYIWorldwide.com. And we're back right now to the Deeper Waters podcast. Now, if you're listening here, you know by now, hopefully, my guest is Dr. David Capes out of Houston, talking about his translation of a voice. Now, next week, we've got an interesting show planned with a topic that if you've done any internet evangelism, you would have come across this before. How many times have you met someone who says, well, you know, Jesus, he's really based off of Mithras, or Horus, or Osiris, or Addis, or Dionysus, or Krishna, or whoever you want to think of. Are those claims very accurate? And my next guest, next week says, 
No, that's going to be Joe Morva here. And he's doing his dissertation, I believe, in fact, on this topic. And so we're going to be discussing the pagan copycat theory. It's going to be a really interesting show and certainly to send quite a few skeptics into conversions when they hear about this. But, oh well, that's what we do around here. <laughs> now, for now, we are talking with uh, Dr. David Capes. We're talking about the translation for voice. And we just got done talking about the name of God and how the word the eternal is used to describe God in there. And it's really something unique that I've found translations in. It really is a good way to set it apart because there are times in the Bible when a generic term like Elohim is used to describe God, but then there are times that Yahweh is used, and those times need to be set apart. But if you're reading the Bible and it just says God and Lord over and over, you're not going to know which one is which. That's right, Nick. Yeah, I, I think that's a very important point, and and it comes over into the New Testament in, in a particular way, and that Jesus is given the name that is above every name. Mm-hmm. Right in the book of Philippians, chapter right. two, Paul talks about the fact that, uh, and gives a wonderful poem. In fact, I'd love to quote that poem at some point in our show because it's a good example of how we use poetry in this translation. But it says that Jesus is given the name that is above every name, and that name is the name, really, that, that is Yahweh's name, the unspeakable name, the, the name Jesus becomes so closely associated with Yahweh, the unspeakable name of the one true God, that to say the name of Jesus is to just be reminded of Yahweh, mm. and that every knee bows, every tongue confesses when that happens. Mm. So, uh, yeah, we see this New Testament, that, that Paul is able, Paul particularly, the earliest theologian, Writing in the New Testament. I'll, I'll, in fact, I'm writing a book about this. We'll have to come back and talk about this later. But I'm writing a book called An Early High Christology Paul, Jesus, and the Scriptures of Israel, where Paul takes scriptures referring to the divine name and associates those with Jesus. This is a, it's an explosive thing that happens uh, in the early church. And uh, it's just, uh, anyway, I, 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 I don't want to spend too much time on that, but that's just a great. Uh, a, ahead then and turn to Philippians 2 and have you read that passage since you really want to. Oh yeah, I, I would. And let me remind everybody that one of the things that we did, we invited poets as well as scholars to work together. Mm. One of my favorite translations of the Bible is the New American Standard. Right. And I like it because it's very literal. But here's the problem. When you look at the text of the New American Standard, every verse is formatted like a paragraph. Every verse is indented, every verse comes to an end, and there's a hard character turn, etc. Mm-hmm. So when you come to the middle of a poem, you don't even know you're reading a poem. Mm-hmm. In fact, Philippians 2, 6 to 11, is an early Christian poem, mm-hmm. perhaps the earliest one in history that we know about today. Could have even been a hymn, right? Exactly. It was, it was sung, it was chanted uh, in churches, and mm-hmm. Paul quotes it in his letter to the Philippians. And yep. so what we did is we brought together a couple of poets to help us track this so that we would not only uh, translate the word accurately, 
but we would also hear some of the beauty and the cadence mm -hmm. of the poem. And here's how we translate it. <clears throat> Though he was in the form of God, he chose not to cling to equality with God, but he poured himself out to fill a vessel brand new, servant in form and a man indeed, the very likeness of humanity. He humbled himself, obedient to death, merciless death on the cross. So God raised him up to the highest place and gave him the name of the wall. So when his name is called, every knee will bow in heaven, on earth, below. Every tongue will confess, Jesus, the liberating king, is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Mm. Yeah. There's something about poetry, Nick, mm -hmm. that's beautiful. That yeah, attracts yeah. our attention, mm -hmm. that summarizes things so well. And so that's one of the things that we wanted to do. I'm wondering if that's another version you've got of a voice. When I've got it says, Jesus, the anointed one. Yeah, one of the earlier, yeah, see, I'm actually quoting from the original. Mm -hmm. um, we, this is another thing that we did, Nick, mm -hmm. in the translation. Um, literally, that says, Curios. Jesus Christos. Mm -hmm. yeah. Lord Jesus Christ. But here's the problem. Most people don't understand what the word Christ means. Now, right. I know that sounds pretty simple, but they don't. They think it's a name. Yeah, I've actually had some skeptics tell me, why would a Jewish guy have a Greek last name? Yeah, it is, it is not a name. Uh, and, and unfortunately, a lot of people have treated Jesus Christ as, as a name. Like Jesus is his first name, Christ is his second name. Mm -hmm. right? Like he's the son of Joseph and Mary Christ. Yeah. Right? But, but that, that's not what it is. It is actually the earliest title attributed to Jesus by his disciples. Mm -hmm. it, is, it, is, it, does, it is translated over into Greek for us. Mm -hmm. What it means literally is Jesus the anointed. Jesus the Anointed. Mm -hmm. And so every what we decided to do is we decided not to transliterate that word Christos becomes in most Bible translations Christ. Mm -hmm. right? We decided not to transliterate it because it's misunderstood right. as a name and not a title. We wanted to try to take it back to the title. You talked earlier about uh, reading the translation by... Uh, N.T. Wright. Right, yeah. And he, he, he translates Christos as what? Do you remember? King. King, exactly. Well, it, before he did his translation, we had worked on and finished our New Testament, and we translated that phrase, Jesus Christ, as Jesus the liberating king. Mm -hmm. Because he comes to liberate us from sin and death and oppression and, and all those kinds of things. So Jesus the liberating king. It is a, that is a dynamic translation of what the word Hamashiach, the Messiah, or HaChristos means. Mm -hmm. It's not a name. It's a title. It's the earliest title. And titles should not be con uh, should not be confused with what a name is. They're very different things. Although, to be fair, we can say that in some of the epistles later on, Jesus is referred to as simply Christ, which does in fact show us that very early on, Jesus was so identified as Messiah, but you could just use the term Messiah and the church say, oh, you're talking about Jesus. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly right. But, it, but again, that's, that's different than saying 
Messiah is a name or Christ is a name. We, we might say, you might hear on the news, mm. evening news, well, the president said this and the president did this. Yeah. Well, a president isn't a name, it's a title. Right. Or you can say uh, Barack Obama said this or Barack Obama said that. But we, we can substitute it. We can, when we're talking about another mm. person, we can substitute the title for the name. But that doesn't mean the title is a name. Right. Right. So uh, we, we, we struggle with that. Mm. Uh, in part because we wanted to try to help folks understand that we're dealing with a title that means literally the anointed. So we translated literally Jesus the anointed over and over. And then sometimes we would gloss that with this other phrase, Jesus the liberating king. I really like liberating king a lot since it gets the whole idea of how important it is that Jesus is the Messiah. And I, I haven't had him on the show, but Scott McKnight has written the King Jesus Gospel about yeah. how how some people say, what difference does it make that Jesus is the Messiah? Well, I think the early Christians say it makes all the difference in the world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. But I mean, and, and, and to be fair, uh, we live in a culture, you and I live in a culture, where we don't have a king. Right. right. But we do have stories of kings. And mm-hmm. we do have a memory collectively of what a good king is. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we probably looked at, we probably are both fans of Lord of the Rings or something like that at the mm-hmm. Hobbit. Right. And there are kings in there, and there are powerful people, and they're important people. Uh, though we don't have a king, and we wouldn't want to live under a king necessarily, we still have a memory mm-hmm. of a king that is a beautiful, wonderful thing, who, who rules, one who rules justly and righteously, and one who uh, does what is right in God's eyes. We, we have that memory, and I think that's what we're trying to tap into. Yeah, I actually write some of the curriculum for our church for the discussion of the sermons that we have, and right now we're doing a series on the Lord's Prayer, and I had to write something on, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And yeah. I had to start off saying, we don't usually think about kings in our terms of a democracy and such, but here's the difference it makes to have Jesus as king. I only have a couple paragraphs, have to make it as simple as I can, but it, it really did hit home with, yeah, here's how you really have to explain this to people where here in America the notion of a king is completely foreign to them. It, it is, yeah, but I do think you're, we're still tapping into right. a cultural memory that is very positive of kings and queens. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, you know, part of that may be our literature, part of that just may be our culture, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I still think we're tapping into something important. And in fact, uh, Nick, uh, I'm, a, I'm glad you mentioned that because it reminds me of something. Uh, the central teaching of Jesus is about the kingdom of God. We talked about that earlier. Right. People often ask me, what, is, what does the kingdom of God mean? Mm-hmm. And I use the Lord's Prayer as a kind of a key to that. And I, this is what I say. I say, the kingdom of God is the time and place in history when God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. Mm-hmm. So if you want to know what the kingdom of God is, that's a good definition of the kingdom of God. Time and place in history when God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. And I'm, I can be personally invested in that, but the kingdom of God is not just Jesus sitting on my wee little heart, right? Right. Uh, the, the throne of my wee little heart. It, it, it's, it's about God's reign in history. It's about God reign over a people. My wife and I have these kinds of discussions, and I echo a lot of what Wright says, and he's one of my 
favorite offers to read. And you know, can you imagine Caesar coming to a throne hunt and having people going around saying, "Good news, everyone! Caesar is lord of the Roman Empire now, and he has a wonderful plan for your life." <laughs> and point of that, part of the problem with what we do today is that too many of us tend to think too much about ourselves and you know this idea that God owes us so many things or we treat God as if he's your buddy your personal pal and you treat him like anyone else that you would know and try to say no we need to read in mind that God does love us he cares for us but he's the king and we're not and the kind of message I'd give to people is right now God is reigning as king through his, through his son Jesus on this earth, and he's inviting you to take part in that. that that's, a, that's, a, that's a good way of putting it, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and in fact, one of the things, <laughs> go back to the translation for a moment, is our tagline for the translation is step into the story of Scripture. Right. We invite people to sort of see, here's, here's the story of what God is doing and is mm-hmm. up to, and uh, God is inviting us to, to be a part of it. That, that's what the word church means. People who've been called, mm-hmm. people who've been invited, and people who've said yes to the call. And it's so, so it's so important to see it as a story because we we can read the New Testament on its own and get a basic idea of what's going on, but it's kind of like watching, say, my wife really likes the series 24, her and her family, mm. and I didn't watch it, and so... Recently, we had 24 Die Another Day come on, which is a, a new kind of sub-series, which would be 12 episodes instead of 24 episodes. Right. And so I'd sit down and I'd watch it with her, and I could understand basically, well, here's a good guy. Yeah, I understand that. He's shooting the bad guys. Yeah, I understand that. But for a whole story, what's going on? I had no idea what was going on. And you'd be kind of like watching a TV show and coming in mid-season, you can get a pretty general grasp of what's going on, but if you want the whole picture, you have to see how it fits in the whole story. And for to yeah. understand the New Testament, we really have to understand the whole story, and that means we have to understand the Old Testament, too. Exactly right, yeah. And, and there, are, there are those that sort of just discount the Old Testament. In fact, I, I wrote an article a few years ago, I'll, I'll tell you about it. I, I, I asked students. I teach at Houston Baptist University. I asked right. a few students, when you hear the word Old Testament, what, is that, what does that mean to you? Mm-hmm. And for them, the word old meant worn out, used up, uh, yesterday's news. It was not a good thing. Right. right. So I, I said, well, let, let's retire the word, the phrase Old Testament, and let's try to reclaim what it really is. Let's call it the Testament classic, mm-hmm. or the classic Testament, because it really is. It's not old, it's not worn out, it's not used up, it's not yesterday's news. Mm-hmm. It is really the background to mm-hmm. all of the New Testament. Right. And to the degree that we know the old, we'll be able to understand the new. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I don't know if, if your listeners would resonate with that, but the whole idea of the, uh, the Old Testament being outdated in some way is disturbing. And uh, I, I think we need, to, we need to reclaim it. The New Testament is the Old Concealed. The Old Testament is the New Revealed. There you go. Okay, I haven't heard that. Put that away exactly. That's good, though. I, I think it actually comes from Augustine. Oh, good. Okay. <clears throat> you're, you're 
training is coming through. That's good. <laughs> yeah, I try. But right now we're about an hour and 20 minutes in the show, so I'd like to remind everyone here that this show, you listen to it free, but the work that goes into it, it's not free. Okay, first off, this show is part of CYI Worldwide with Grok Radio, and you can go to cyiworldwide.com and find ways to support. There's prayer, Bibles I'll be giving out if you need counseling, there's someone there that can help you with that, and there are several, several other shows. So if you want to support the work of the station as a whole, where well, that's the place to go. Now, let's suppose you want to support my show here, alone in the Ministry of Deeper Waters, where you can go to deeperwaters.wordpress.com and you'll find a donation button. That will take you to Risen Jesus, the Ministry of Mike Lacona. And you make your donation there, and then after you're done with that, email and say, Hey, uh, I sent this donation in, and I went to go to Nick Peters and Deeper Waters, something like that, and my in-laws will make sure... That donation does go to us. If you want to be monthly donors, that would be excellent as well. And then, of course, we got ebooks. The main one right now is one my ministry partner, J.P. Holding, and I wrote together called Defining Inerrancy, which is a response to Geisler and Farnell's book, Defending Inerrancy, and that's Bill Rochin. Geisler wrote that one. It's a response to Geisler and Farnell's Jesus Quest as well. It was a response to both of them. As well. It's a short little book and some proceeds from it will go to support us. And we're working right now on putting together a series of blogs I've written to respond to several new atheists as well. And hopefully that will be out sometime soon. And I'll tell you when, if you're in the Knoxville area next Saturday night, I'm going to be speaking at Lighthouse Christian Church on the Resurrection for an Apologetics Conference, so you can message me or email me if you want more details about that. And finally, we've also got an Amazon store at our website, the deeperwaters.wordpress.com. You go there and you purchase books, including books that you've heard about on this show. For instance, you can find The Voice there. You go and you purchase them there. You'll be getting the same book at the same price. And some of the proceeds will go to support Deeper Waters. So, you know, you really can't lose with that kind of deal. So, if you like what you've heard about The Voice and you want to pick up a copy, please go that route to pick up a copy and you'll be supporting us at the same time. Now, Dr. Capes, do you have a ministry that you would like people to support? Yeah, thanks, Nick. Um, our church is very much invested in, a, in an organization that's based out of here in Houston. It's called Living Water International. I don't know if you've heard of it, but it's 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 a great organization, and essentially they dig cold water wells, fresh water, and provide fresh water to villages in Africa mm-hmm. and parts of South America and Central America, really any place where there's where there's a need for fresh water. Every every 15 seconds, Nick, a child dies for lack of clean water. Mm-hmm. They get diseases that come from drinking contaminated water and they die, or they're sick, so sick they can't attend school, or, or they, uh, terrible things happen. So this organization goes and digs these cold water wells in the name of Christ and his, his kingdom for uh, uh, all over the world. And it's a great organization, Living Water International. I hope folks would go and just look it up and uh, make themselves aware of it. 
Uh, they take people on, uh, they train people how to uh, uh, dig these wells. They'll take you down to, to Central America. They'll take you to Africa. You want to go for a mission trip. But the main thing they do is they need, they need the equipment, and they do need to be able to send in the experts to dig these cold waters. Sometimes, Nick, uh, good fresh water is only about 160 feet below, below the ground. Mm-hmm. And rather than drinking contaminated water, these folks can uh, can get access to clean water. Helps helps thousands of people uh, mm. just to dig a, a single well. In many cases, and that sounds like certainly something that we should all be supporting. Yeah, Living Water International. We are getting back then to the voice here. Now, some of it I haven't come across it yet, but I did mean to think that in some places. You put for verses in different order. Yes. Right. Yeah. And and part of that is is uh, in the sense of trying to get the story right. You know, the verses are not original, right, right. Nick? Right. Chapters and verses were added many many years later. Mm-hmm. So it's not original to the Greek and Hebrew. So sometimes in trying to get the order correct of a story, something might become later that might need to go up a little higher in the story because they're not tracking with the English uh, language the same way we we would. Mm -hmm. So in in some cases, and it's usually just a verse or two that's moved up uh, or that that has changed from the typical versification that you see. But that's simply an acknowledgement that the original verses are not original and it, it helps us understand the sense of the story a little bit better to have them come in a little bit different order. That must have been an an unusual decision to make in some ways because most Bibles don't do something like that. How did that decision come about? Well, it it, it comes about basically from people who are scholars and and storytellers mostly because we never did that in poetry. We only did this in, in for example, the book of Acts, you might see it a couple of times. And this only happens a couple of times in the whole translation, right? Uh, I don't even know if I, I, I can tell you how many times it happens. But it doesn't happen very often. Yeah. In fact, when, it, when it does happen, uh, we, we collaborated together and say, well, this bit of information would be more helpful to the reader here, but that means we have to change the verses around. We wanted to keep the original versification. We didn't have to. In fact, when we translated this, we took all the verses out. Mm-hmm. We took all the numbers out. We said, okay, just translate this. Mm-hmm. And then when we, went, we, we discovered when we were putting the numbers back in that some things were needing to be in a little bit different order. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's an unusual decision, but most Bible translations are not done by taking the verses out, the numbers out in the first place. Yeah. And you do indicate in the text, I understand, when this happens, so the reader... In the footnote, we've indicated, well, typically, you know, verse 28 is moved here in order for the sense of the story or something. There's a way of indicating that we've, we've, we've adjusted the original versification mm-hmm. for the sake, the, the greater good of getting the story right. Mm-hmm. Now, let's talk also about some of the sidebars. That you have yeah. in there. For instance, sometimes you'll find this little section, it's a small one, and it's within the verses themselves in the middle. For instance, I'm looking at Psalm 26 right now, and it says, A great theme throughout the Psalms is the experience of coming before God. This Davidic Psalm affirms the integrity of a worshiper before the Lord, even while pleading for God's mercy. 
Yes. Okay, yes. so how, how does that kind of sidebar come about? Well, one of the things that we thought about, Nick, in this whole thing is, remember, we're doing this Bible translation for people who, who don't read Bibles. Mm -hmm. So most of those kinds of sidebar or commentary things are done at the bottom of the page. Mm -hmm. And you have a little note that says, okay, go to the bottom of the page. Well, people who are used to doing that, they, they get that right. But for people who aren't used to that and seeing it that way, what we did is we put, we embedded the commentary in the text itself. And we did that putting it in a different font, putting it sometimes mm -hmm. in a different color, putting mm -hmm. it sometimes in a, like a box of some sort. Mm -hmm. So we can say, okay, this is not in the text, or this is not the biblical text, but this is the commentary on the text. Right. And the goal was to try to, try to help people track, again, once again, with the story. What's going on here? Sometimes that's clear to a reader, sometimes it's not, mm -hmm. particularly the kind of readers we had in mind, people that don't read the Bible often at all. Mm-hmm. And what would you do if you came across a passage that was pretty controversial and you had different viewpoints on what was going on in the passage? Well, a lot of those are based upon interpretational schemes. Mm -hmm. We we stayed away from uh, most of those. Uh, in fact, almost all of them. Uh, we stayed away and we said, okay, wh what do people have to know to be able to read this story well? Do they need mm -hmm. to know the four different ways that the rapture is understood mm -hmm. and the tribulation is understood to give this? Probably not. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the, those kind of controversial things, we're just going to leave for other people to sort out. We wanted people to really work with the text, read the text, mm -hmm. and not and not uh, not too much dabble in all the different controversies. Mm -hmm. uh, we're, we're doing a Bible translation, after all, with with some commentary in there to help guide the reader. Yeah. But we, we we didn't really want to uh, double down on the on all the sort of controversial passages. Yeah, the main thing you want, I'm thinking, is probably what C.S. Lewis would call mere Christianity. Yeah, that's that's a good way of putting it. You know? mm. We we just wanted them to have a basic understanding of the of the biblical story itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one thing I also noticed when I've been reading the New Testament, and I've been going through the Book of Acts in this translation, and you don't see the term Gentiles show up. Instead, you see yeah. outsiders described. Yeah. What's going on with that? Yeah. Uh, that's a that's a good that's a very good question. Now it's not that the word Gentiles does not occur in the in the translation. It does in some of the books, but in the in the book of Acts in particular, there's there's a, a kind of a dynamic between who is on the inside and who is on the outside. Mm -hmm. Who is on the inside of the covenant people? Who is on the outside of the covenant people? And the Gentiles are those who are outside the covenant. The Jews were on the insiders, if you will. And so we sometimes chose to use the translation. The word simply means the nations. That's what the word ethnoi means in Greek, the nations. Mm -hmm. all, those other, all those other people, all those other guys out there. And so we thought the word outsiders for this generation might be a good way of kind of getting at that reality. Yes. We, we seem to miss so much the, the Jewish-Gentile distinction that was going on in the ancient world that the Jews really did see themselves as this huge set apart people and then all of a sudden you have all these Gentiles that are coming into the church like wait wait where do they belong how does this fit exactly and then ironically 
few decades later, I think that this is what's going on with the Book of Romans, that all these Jews have been expelled, and these Gentiles have been in these Christian churches for a while, and then these Jews are coming back, and now the Gentiles are asking about the Jews, okay, how do these people fit in here? Yeah, exactly. And I think that's a huge problem in the New Testament uh, mm-hmm. that's being dealt with. Uh, th- th- those who were the original followers of Jesus were all Jews. Uh, they, they were all uh, probably strict Jews, like uh, mm-hmm. the Pharisees were in many cases. Uh, the word Pharisee is not always a pejorative word. Right. Sometimes it's a very positive word in the New Testament. It simply means those who are pious. That's mm-hmm. the word Those who are the pious. Those who are the devout. And so it's, it's in some cases a very positive word. So the, the question was uh, how, for the early Christians, how do, we, how do we sit down and have table fellowship with people who we're, we've never been allowed to have table fellowship before because we eat different foods, we eat different ways, we eat with different rituals. Mm-hmm. And who you, have, who you have a meal with says a lot about who you are, the kind of person you are, particularly mm-hmm. in the ancient world. Uh, it's true today, but also more true in the ancient world. You know, we can too often read the Pharisees as if they were the villains in the Bible. And in some ways, you could say that when it comes to Jesus, a number of them were, since they were opposing. But most Pharisees were quite likely just people who were taking their Judaism seriously in a certain way and just seeking to serve God rightly. Yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, yeah, the, uh, the Pharisees get a get a bad rap, and sometimes rightly so, because they, they do uh, come at Jesus pretty hard. But that's not all of them. Mm-hmm. Um, Saul, again, was a Pharisee. And, yes, he came at the church pretty hard. and But he never stopped, he, it, even when he came to faith, yeah. uh, after Damascus Road, he didn't stop seeing himself as a Jew. And there's some people who make the argument that Paul never stops seeing himself as belonging to the sect of the Pharisees. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a little controversial, I know, but there are a good, competent scholars sort of making that case today that Saul never saw himself leaving that and continues to read Scripture in particular as a Pharisee would. Mm-hmm. In fact, uh, my own wife and I were discussing this kind of question while well, back asking, if we lived in the time of Jesus, would we have seen who he was or not? And it's a really good question to ask yourself, because we can look in the New Testament and think, geez, you people, isn't it just obvious what's going on here? But we need to take off the uh, <clears throat> New Testament lenses we've had for so long and realize that if we were Jews at the time of Jesus, we would be utterly stunned by most of the things that he was doing and saying. Yeah. The uh, friend of mine, Larry Hurtado, who teaches at the University of Edinburgh... He hasn't been on the show. He hasn't been on the show. Okay, well, he's, he's very fond of saying that Jesus was a deeply polarizing figure. Mm-hmm. And uh, people either loved him or they hated him. Mm-hmm. And the people who loved him was a fairly small group of people. Uh, he had a lot more opposition out there than we can imagine. Uh, for people, uh, more often than not, who are very religiously-minded people... Mm-hmm. And uh, unfortunately, we have a tendency sometimes to line up with those folks too often. Mm-hmm. Now, something else I see going on in Acts at times is, for instance, I'm looking at Acts 16, where you've got the wonderful passage describing what happens when Paul and Silas are thrown in jail. I'm not saying that's wonderful, but what happens is incredible. And 
it starts off with picture bits. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's if you'll notice that uh, that text is also in italics mm -hmm. as well. Right. It's not original, but what what that that is doing is that's trying to, to draw your attention and say, okay, look at this. Take, take a look at this. There's a there's a Hebrew word called chene, which is often translated, behold, look here, pay attention. There's a similar word in, in Greek called idu, look, pay attention, well, look at this. And, and that's what we're trying to get across. We're, we're trying to pull across the attention, trying to attract the attention of the reader and say, this, picture what's happening here next. Look mm. what's happening with. See this with your mind, what's going on here. Now, you said earlier in the show that the voice is meant to appear to people in the 18 to 35 crowd. Why do you think it will appear to that crowd first, and why are you trying to reach that crowd specifically? Well, what we're seeing, uh, Nick, is something very interesting, uh, culturally speaking. Mm -hmm. uh, there are, we've been tracking this since the Second World War, the number of people who, who are, quote, in church during their high school years, they go off to college, and, and they go off and they get married, start their lives, and then after that, they're no longer, quote, in church. What we're seeing today, and there are predictions that are saying that 86% of the kids who are 15, 16 now in church, 86% mm -hmm. will not return after college. Right. Okay. So we have a high percentage. Now, this, this has gone up dramatically since the Second World War. It's always been that way and always probably will be that way, but the numbers are just astonishing these days. Mm -hmm. So um, that's, that was our concern, uh, the, the biblical illiteracy that's among that crowd. Right. And I think part of, part of that is if they really understood the story better, mm -hmm. if they understood their place in the story better, mm -hmm. then they wouldn't necessarily be shucking it all and banding it in the first place. Mm -hmm. But I think there are things that we do in this translation. We, we call this an eclectic translation because you see the old and the new side by side. Mm -hmm. You see the familiar and the new side by side. Uh, we've done the, we've had the poets working with us. We've tried to do poetry differently. We did the screenplay format uh, differently. We provided this sort of embedded commentary in the text, not at the bottom of the page that you can look up and down and look up and down, that you can see right in the middle of the page what's going on there. We think all these different, I guess, formatting things and ways of doing it are going to make it easier for people to read the Bible and to mm -hmm. appreciate it. And that's our hope. That's been our hope all along. Mm -hmm. Now, you also have said, though, that you know, I'm, in, I'm guessing you're implying that you want the voice to, as it were, be a door, as well. If they go and they read other translations, then, hey, that's great, because most translations that are paraphrases, for instance, in such, they're not meant to be pure academic study, right? Yeah, there's a difference between a paraphrase and a translation. Mm -hmm. uh, a translation starts with one language and ends in another. Mm -hmm. A paraphrase starts in one language and ends in that same language, right? Right. So uh, people have actually misunderstood Eugene Peterson's work as a, a paraphrase. In mm -hmm. fact, he worked with the original languages. Mm -hmm. he, he was not very strict and formal in his uh, translation you know, uh, yeah. approach, but, but he still was doing a translation in that sense. Mm -hmm. But we, what we've done is a translation, and we're more on the dynamic side in places. Right. We, we call
call what we've done, I don't know if you read the introduction or not, but we, we call what we've done a contextual translation. Mm -hmm. Because we're trying to take seriously not only the context of the Bible when it was written, the culture there, but also modern culture. Mm -hmm. and modern people. So when if, if a person says the word angel today, what do they imagine? What What is in their head when they say the word angel? My guess is a lot of them... I guess there's a lot of money thinking something like touched by an angel or something like that. With exactly, it. that's exactly right. If, mm -hmm. if you if you just Google image angel, it's always a feminine figure mm -hmm. or a chubby cherub, right? Yeah. And and it, and we've been influenced by these touched by an angel kind of thing. So an angel is, is this divine being that comes down to help us when we need it most, right? It helps us yeah. do a tough patch of life. But in fact, the, the creatures called angels in the Bible are always masculine, mm -hmm. always fearsome. The sea one is to want to die. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's why I say don't be afraid over and over. And they're always there representing heaven's interest and not our own. So we decided not to use the word angel because in our context, the word angel is misunderstood. Yeah. And so we translated every time in the Hebrew Malach, every time the Greek Angeloi, we translate the heavenly messenger. Mm -hmm. So the heavenly messenger come down, because he's representing heaven's interest. That's exactly what an Angeloi is, a messenger, or a Malach. Oh, they're, they're, in Hebrew, they're a messenger. My wife's actually writing a manga right now. Those don't know, it's kind of a Japanese comics book. And she's having it be angels versus demons going to become an evangelistic tour and I was just thinking I don't think she does have any female angels there and her angels are certainly not these little soft gentle types no they come out with swords and rocket launchers and everything else so yeah yeah well that, that that'd be more more correct I mean you know uh, the, the names of the angels are, are things like Mikhail mm -hmm. Gabriel, who is like God, Mikhail, who is like God, uh, Gabriel's Hebrew as well, and Uriel and Yahweh, mm -hmm. uh, and these divines, they're all masculine figures, they're all uh, very, very powerful and mm -hmm. fearsome figures yeah. as well. Now, you said though that you wrote this for 18 to 35 year olds, but people in the 50s and 60s age range, they're using it quite a bit as well. Yeah, yeah, that's that, I tell you, that has really surprised us, the, um, the number of people who are in that age range who have been avid Bible readers for many years, who mm -hmm. said, gosh, they, they, they love what we've done, they like it, they understand it, they appreciate it. Maybe it's not their favorite translation, but they, but they do pick it up, they do read it, they do preach from it. Uh, it it's interesting to see how many people in that age range who, who have an appreciation for what we've done. I'm really grateful for that. Do you have any reasons why you think they like it so much? I think because it's a it's a it's a fresh take, uh, mm. Nick. Frankly, yeah, it's, it's completely. Again, if if you go back and read Genesis one one mm. and all the other translations, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning God created, or for God so loved the world and gave His only begotten. It's always the same, right? Mm -hmm. We we took a fresh look at all of this and we said, okay, exactly what is the best way to to, to get at this, what is really being said here? So to read these translations is sort of to read the same thing. To read our translation is to read something different yeah. and something fresh and something that's uh, helpful to. At least I think that's probably what what's going on here. Yeah. 
with uh, John 3.16, since you mentioned it. I'll read it, what you've got here. For God expressed his love reward in this way. He gave his only son, so whoever believes in him will not face everlasting destruction, but will have everlasting life. Exactly, yeah. That, that's, a different, that's a different translation. We think it more accurately gets at what is in the heart of John when he's writing John 3.16. Mm. And, and part of that for us is the recognition that for modern people, the word love is a feeling-oriented word. Right. Did God have a warm, fuzzy feeling? Is that what it says, God loved the world? Did he have a warm, fuzzy feeling? In fact, no, we don't know what kind of feeling God had. Mm-hmm. In Hebrew, but also in the Greek, the word love is a word of action. It's a word of, of reaching out and caring for another one actively or meeting their needs or, or seeking what is best for them, doing mm-hmm. what is best in their best interest no matter what it costs you. Yeah. That, that's what love is. And so we wanted to take it out of the idea where God loved the world, but God expressed his love for the world this way. Mm-hmm. And that's what the word so means. God so loved the world. It's not so as in so very much, but God loved the world so, that mm-hmm. is, in this way. That's what that Greek word there, hutois, means. Yeah, I, I hear what you're saying about love. In fact, I hold to a divine impassibility that God doesn't really have emotions. And uh, one aspect of this that we need to bring out is that too often when we make love something more feeling-oriented, well, what do you do when those feelings aren't there? Because they're definitely, because you're always supposed to act in love of your spouse and your children, for instance. But there will be certain times definitively that you will not be feeling the love. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. You know, and, and if you put all this sort of investment that God has this loving feeling toward the world, um, that's really to miss the point. And we don't know what kind of feeling God may have had. If, in fact, God has any, quote, feelings at all, in the sense that we know what, that we experience them, that is. Yeah. And since we talked a little bit about John, at the very beginning, in the first verse you got here, in the beginning, before time itself was measured, the voice was speaking. Is there any reason that you have it? Well, of course there is, but is it any coincidence that the translation is called the voice in Jesus? And John's beautiful prologue is described as the voice. Yeah, there's there's definitely a connection there, and I would and to get the full story of that, I would encourage people to get to uh, uh, the the book that we've written called The Story of the Voice because it lays it out really very well. Mm-hmm. Uh, sort of the thinking about that. All the other translations will say in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, etc. A perfectly good translation. But the word there in the Greek is the word logos. Mm-hmm. Right. And the word logos is translated in the new in the New American Standard, the word logos is translated using twenty two different words. Right. Right. It can mean it can mean word, it can mean speech, it can mean account, it can mm-hmm. mean so many other it can mean reason. It, it's a, a word capable of lots and lots and lots of meaning. And I think that if you, and here's the problem that we face. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God. If you take any standard definition that people would know of the word word and put it there, it, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense. What we're talking about here is a Christological title mm-hmm. that I think goes to the fact that in 
in the beginning, God was speaking when he created the world, right? In the beginning, God created, right? And I do, he did that by speaking. And that Jesus was present with him in that speaking and was a co-creator of that world. Mm-hmm. So in the beginning, the voice was speaking. The word, the word lege is, is cognate with the word logos in Greek. Now, I, I know that doesn't sound like exactly the same word, but essentially it is. And the word lege means he speaks or mm-hmm. he says. So I think that what we were trying to get at is a sort of a different way of framing that whole passage. Now, if you, if you continue to read on, what we do, Nick, there is we stack several words to try to get at the meaning. Read the, read the rest of that. Uh, read uh, John 1, 1 through 3. Okay. Get at it, yeah. In the beginning. Before time itself was measured, the voice was speaking. The voice was and is God. This celestial word remained ever-present with the Creator. His speech shaped the entire cosmos. Immersed in the practice of creating, all things that exist were birthed in Him. See, what we've done is we have stacked, we've taken a particular word, logos, and we've used two different words to try to express aspects of the meaning. We've used voice. You get the idea that God is speaking, has mm-hmm. been speaking, continues to speak, finally, definitively through Jesus. But also this word, word, this celestial word, this heavenly, heavenly word, mm-hmm. as a kind of a Christological title. So it's really it's the stacking of these words that I think gets at the meaning better than just simply saying in the beginning was the word. Mm-hmm. That's a good translation. But again, if you if you if you go to someone who's not an avid Bible reader, they haven't been to a sermon, right, uh, on this text. They, they don't have a commentary at hand. In the beginning was the word. What does that mean? Mm-hmm. We think that our stacking of these ideas, that God is speaking, that this celestial word has been creating, etc., gets, gets at it a little bit better for that. Right. I had a, I had a, let me just throw this in. I had a, uh, I was in Portland speaking about this translation in a, conference there, and somebody, a fellow who was objecting to some of the things we've, we've done, and didn't understand that, and I'm grateful for the comments, he said, why don't you just, if somebody doesn't understand in the Bible, what something in the Bible, why don't you just say, go ask your pastor? Uh. And I said, this is exactly the problem. The people that we have in mind don't have pastors. Mm-hmm. They don't have churches. They don't have Bible Gateway on their computers, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the people that we are after in reading this translation and trying to get it are people for whom they don't have any context for reading this text. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're saying, I understand, yeah, yeah, okay, go, go, go see your pastor. But what if they don't have a pastor? Mm-hmm. What, do you, what do you do? Um, those are the kind of people that we had in mind in doing this translation. Mark Strauss is a good friend of mine. He teaches at Bethel in San Diego. We need to have him on the show. He hasn't been on yet. He hasn't been on yet. He's written a great book with Gordon Fee, How to Choose a Translation for All It's Worth. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, my wife and I flew out to uh, San Diego, oh, gosh, it's been a year and a half now, and I spoke out at Bethel Seminary about the, the Boys Project. And Mark is a very much a fan of saying this. He says, look, and when you're studying the Bible, you don't need just one translation. You need a variety of translations. That's why you need to go to Bible Gateway. Yeah. That's why you need the Logos software. 
right. and you're really studying and you want to get at something, have several different translations there because each of them will, will, will pull back the veil on one aspect of the text. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's in the confluence of those translations that you get a, a good, broader sense of what's in the text. You know, when you were talking about the guy who said, just go ask your pastor, I was thinking on a different everything. That's part of the problem in our church today is that the average Christian in a pew doesn't know how to study the Bible for themselves or think, in fact, for themselves. And they just rely on whatever the pastor says and then just go off and quote that as gospel, assuming the pastor has to have it right. Yeah, yeah, and and we are very much, uh, our, our churches, Protestant churches, are very pastor-centered churches, aren't they? Mm-hmm. Um, that can be healthy. There can be healthy dynamics to that. There can be some unhealthy dynamics as well. Right. Um, depending upon who the pastor is, depending upon what they know, depending mm-hmm. upon the kind of leader that they are. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, 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 there's, there's something to be said for, for churches that are really elder-led or community-led. Mm-hmm. There's some strength there, I think. So what are what are you hearing about the voice from others now? Is it good or what? Yeah, more, by and large, the people who understand. Here's the, the thing: some people um, don't take time to read it. Yeah. Uh, they they just they just hear new Bible translation, not interested. Right? I had a guy. I was in uh, the uh, where was I? I think I was in California speaking. And I had a, had a guy who, who came by, and we were talking about the translation. And he was pretty much a King James-only guy. Oh, boy. Right? And, and pretty much, he was a bah humbug about everything. Bah humbug, this, bah. I mean, new translation, man, man, man. So I, I said to him, look, this is, I understand. I understand that this isn't necessarily for you, but this is what we've done. This is the project. Just take it and just read the New Testament or, or read some of it, and we'll come back tomorrow and let me know. So he went back to his apartment. Or, I mean, he back, went back to his hotel room. He started reading at 11 that night and didn't put it down to 1.15 in the morning. Nice. He read for two hours, over two hours, and he read through several books. Mm. Right? And he came back the next day and he said, I see why you had to do this. Mm-hmm. And he, he took a couple of other copies to give away to people that he knew that weren't avid Bible readers, weren't, weren't typically reading. Mm. So it's not for everybody, but for those people that understand our mission, what we've tried to accomplish here, uh, who we are hoping to attract into reading the scriptures. Uh, people have been gracious. They've been helpful. They've been very positive. Mm-hmm. And uh, we've had scholars defend our decisions. You know, uh, well, uh, you know, they, they would come in and, and we've had we've had good feedback from yeah. scholars on the project. Part of it is we've had good scholars working on it. Mm-hmm. And part of it is the uh, Well, we're getting to the point that we should be uh, wrapping things up now. So, uh, Dr. Cape, we, we've only had two hours to talk about you and the translation. Such a, this is just getting people aware of it. Where do they go if they want to find out more about you or this translation? Well, thanks, Nick. Yeah, we, we have a, a great website that's called hearthevoice.com. So, www.hearthevoice.com. And on that website, we, we've done a bunch of videos that are really good of Bible readings, and some of them are very visually interesting. And 
Look at the one on Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes mm-hmm. chapter 1 is brilliant. Mm-hmm. Also the one on Psalm 150. Those mm-hmm. are free. People can use those anytime they want to. Mm-hmm. You get access to, uh, to, to some of the products there that we've done. I do a weekly blog there, and some of the scholars help me with that blog. So that's our website, official website, hearthevoice.com. And then I have a personal website, just David B, as in Brian, my middle name, davidbcapes.com. Okay. And I, I write, you know, uh, mainly about New Testament, but also about culture mm-hmm. and various things going on. Mm-hmm. So I uh, would love for folks to know uh, about those and come by and visit with us. And love to hear from you. And, of course, you have your radio show. Exactly, yeah. For, for 12 years now, I've done this radio show in Houston on a secular channel. Nice. A show of faith, and it's a priest, a minister, and a rabbi. It sounds like a joke, hmm. but it's not. It's not it's, we've been on the air 12 years. Have you ever walked into a bar? And we've never walked into a bar <laughs> together, no. I'm sure, we've been, I'm sure the priest has been to a bar and the rabbi's been but I don't know that I've been to a bar. But at any rate, the, the, uh, it, it's been a great project to be a part of because we talk about culture, we talk about what's going on from the standpoint of our different faiths. Mm-hmm. And from time to time, we'll have on a Muslim or a, a Hindu or uh, 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 a Buddhist or, a, you know, different people of different religions. But mainly every week is the priest, the minister, and the rabbi. Okay. Yeah. Now, is there any final message you would like to leave for the Deeper Waters audience? Uh, yeah, I would just, just encourage people to, uh, to to get into the scripture and to read it for themselves. Mm-hmm. And, and read it in a variety of translations. And understand that there's a great story of love and redemption that is ongoing. Been ongoing since the first day, uh, first day of creation, really, and that we can share in that, we can be a part of that, we mm-hmm. can step into that and make that our own story as well. So I would encourage people to, to find a Bible, to find a translation, mm-hmm. and, and a number of translations, and to read them and just ingest that, make it part of their part of their lives, and great things will come of that. Well, Dr. Capes, it's been great having you on the show, and I hope we'll be seeing you back here again sometime. Looks like you've already hinted that we will be. Yeah, yeah, I would hope so. I've, I've just finished a book called Slow to Judge, which is about interfaith dialogue for Thomas Nelson, mm-hmm. and uh, another one called Rediscovering Jesus. So we could come back and talk with you another time about either either of those. Rediscovering Jesus is a, is a different kind of book. Uh, it's going to be a textbook of sorts in colleges and such, but it, it it's not really a textbook approach. It looks at the American Jesus, the Jesus of the Jesus Seminar, the Muslim Jesus, the Mormon Jesus, mm. all these different kind of Jesuses out there, and looking for where the real Jesus please stand up. Mm. Sounds good. Yep, yeah. For now, I'm Nick Peters, and this has been the Deeper Waters Podcast. I want to remind everyone, next week, Joe Marvin here is going to be on the guest. We're going to be talking about the pagan copycat theory, so I hope you'll be here for that. For now, I'm Nick Peters, signing off. It's here, the official Rock Radio mobile app. Listen to your favorite Rock Radio programs on your iPhone, iPad, iPod, Kindle Fire, Android smartphones, and tablets. The best thing is, it's absolutely free. Download it now from the iTunes or Google Play App Store. Or get a link at our website, cyiworldwide.com. Rock Radio, Christian radio that doesn't suck. You're listening to Rock Radio. Two point.